This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Mike Simpson from the KNX Radio.com studios in Los Angeles. I'm also in the Radio.com studios in Los Angeles. I'm Ken Charles, and I'm in for Charles Feldman. We're going to do what we do every day, and that's bring you the latest on the coronavirus pandemic. Allegedly, we have the world's first ever coronavirus vaccine, at least according to Russian President Vladimir Putin. He's claiming the made-in-Russia immunization is ready for use, and he himself has been vaccinated. In fact, allegedly, he's given the vaccination to his daughter. But would you get the COVID-19 vaccine that has Vladimir Putin's seal of approval? I'm not sure I would. Yeah, color me a little suspicious on that one, right? Color me red. (laughs) We know there's a backlog in testing, making people wait for days, even weeks sometimes, to find out if they've got the virus. So there's one epidemiologist at Harvard, and they're proposing a radical idea. Why not just make a bunch of cheap, less accurate tests and give them to everybody to use every day, and then catch most of the infections? Masks or face coverings, for those of us who want to be politically correct, I guess, are effective in slowing the spread of the virus. But not all masks or face coverings are created equal. We'll look at which ones are best and which ones are not. Have you tried to go into a store and buy something lately? If it's shoes or athletic equipment, sometimes furniture, you can't find it. They just steer you online. So we'll look at how the pandemic is changing the retail experience. That's why I send my wife shopping. <laughs> it's I just, the frustration of not being able to find the things I want, I, it just would not be good. Go out into the world. Good luck. Yep. You know what? My wife's more patient than I am. She's also smarter than I am. (laughs) Send her into the world. Let her figure out how to get our stuff. It's a win-win. Not only that, but we're running out of many things. First, disinfecting wipes and hand sanitizers, then coins. Then there's a workout equipment shortage. Well, if you look at me, you know that there's definitely a workout equipment shortage. Now there's some bad news for Dr. Pepper lovers. You know, but it's bad enough with the gym stuff. But now if we can't get Dr. Pepper. This was a global pandemic. Now it's actually gotten serious. It's getting real for people. All right, let's talk about this quote-unquote vaccine against COVID from Russia. But before you start popping the champagne, consider this. The announcement made by Vladimir Putin, a lot of chest-thumping pride, and then there's a lot of skepticism out there about it. Dr. Danny Altman is an immunologist from the Imperial College of London. So, Doc, is it concerning that uh, Russia rushed this through and says they've got something? Yes, so there's no phase three in this report at all, as far as I can see. So, um, you know, normally um, you'd go from a phase two trial, which is where you show that your vaccine stimulates some immunity and is safe. And then you go to a phase three trial where you show it can protect thousands of people. And that's the biggie. That's the real bottleneck. And that doesn't seem to be an attempt here at all. They seem to bypass it altogether. So let's talk about what probably did happen here. If they're at an earlier phase, they probably got something, what, that produced some sort of antibody response. And we've seen this with the other candidates that are out there. So it's not impossible. It's tough to do. And if they did it, that's great. But you still have to take it to the next level because you can give almost anything to, I don't know, 50, 100 people and have no adverse effects, right? But once you scale it up to 30,000, it can be a whole different story. That's precisely the bottleneck. You know, so there there are five or six vaccines in the world that have already made it to phase two trials, including a few in the States. And some of them are quite large, and you know, many hundreds of people, whereas this is one of the smallest ones that's been reported, as far as I understand it. It's something like 30 or 40 people. And all we know about it is that an adenovirus was given and something referred to as strong immunity was induced. So it's actually further back in its evolution than most of the other vaccines we've seen reported openly and transparently in the international press. 
If there are problems with this vaccine, the fact that it was rushed through so quickly, is it just a case that it might not work or could this in fact be dangerous? I think there's a few concerns. Um, You know, I don't sound sniffy about it because we want as many vaccines as possible and this one might be okay. But if you think about it, first of all, it muddies the waters, doesn't it? Because we're all desperate, not for the first vaccine. This isn't a race. It's not a football game. We want, you know, we want a range of the best possible vaccines, most potent, most durable, most safe. And if people are going to rush through vaccines on the basis of trial in 30 or 40 people without any safety... What happens if it's only partially protective or not completely safe and the rest of the world actually loses confidence in the concept because because of this? That would be very hard. It's also very hard if it turns the debate into some kind of, oh, you know, kind of some kind of Cold War political football where we're all racing to try and bypass um, safety testing to get the next best vaccine out. And that would be horrendous. So what do you wait for and what do you watch for? You see if people in Russia are actually protected in a few months' well, time? We, we, we want to restore some calm and sanity <laughs> and some goodwill in the scientific research community who normally actually work together terribly, terribly well with enormous international collaboration. And, you know, you, you wouldn't buy a car, would you, unless you could take all the ones in the marketplace and compare them accurately side by side. So why on earth would we bypass that step in the vaccines that we need to save the planet? So let's just have a kind of calm, like-for-like, side-by-side comparison rather than some kind of bizarre race to finish line. Dr. Danny Altman, immunologist, Imperial College of London. Doctor, thanks. So we know a lot of parts of the country are struggling with backlogs in testing. That's why some people have to wait for days, others weeks. And if you got to wait weeks, what's really the point? So here's an idea. Why not make a lot of less accurate but cheap tests that are readily available for everybody? Kind of like contact lenses. Don't we do that for everything? Now all of a sudden we're going to do that for tests as well? America, land of plentiful cheap things. That should be right there underneath <laughs> E Pluribus Unum. And that's what, ep- well, not the E Pluribus Unum part, but that's what Harvard epidemiologist Dr. Michael Minna is suggesting. He told KYW in Philadelphia it could take as little as $1 per test to stop the spread of the virus. So what I would like to see happen as it is to start using testing out of the diagnostic realm and as a true public health tool to break transmission chains. In the same way that we know that masks can serve to decrease transmission, I want to use tests to decrease transmission. And the way to do that is to use cheap tests that are highly accurate to detect somebody at the moment they're transmitting, but maybe don't, but they don't look accurate because we're comparing them against PCR positivity, which stays positive for so long after transmission. So I want these tests that that will tell somebody that they're transmitting at the time that they're transmitting and people can act on it because they're getting immediate results. And I want them to take it every single day or every other day. And these can exist. There can be $1 a day tests. The government needs, we need a project warp speed for these tests. And the reason is we have put so much effort into vaccines and therapeutics and billions of dollars. We've put trillions of dollars into stimulus for the country. We have a workable solution today that if the federal government actually said, we will put billions of dollars or a billion dollars into really pushing the technology for $1 paper strip tests that can be printed in the millions, uh, which they can be, and get get a package of 50 in everybody, every American's hands, 
uh, over the next month, or not even every American. It could just be in Texas and Arizona and Florida right now, because those are the states that are seeding infections to, to other states. So really take all of this as a big public health um, umbrella approach. And if we can do that, if we can get a test that everyone wakes up, just like they put in their contact lenses, they, they take a test, they, uh, and if it turns positive, they stay home and they take a test the next day and they stay home until the test turns negative or, or for some set number of days, maybe seven days. And, th and that's it. That alone, if everyone's doing it, uh, or even just a majority of people are doing it, then it will stop the vast majority of transmission and it will cause these outbreaks to disappear in a matter of weeks. We don't have to wait for a vaccine when we, we can essentially think of these as development of artificial herd immunity. We know that we don't have to get 100% vaccinated to stop transmission of this virus. We just need around 50 or 60%. The same thing goes here. Face masks, face coverings, not all of them are as good as others. They're not all created equal. Over six months into this, we've got some knowledge that the masks can protect you, they can protect those around you, but what do you get? You get a surgical one, you get an N95. What about a simple cloth mask or one of the neck gaiters, the kind of thing you just pull up over your nose when somebody walks by? Well, there's new research that shows, yes, some of those are better than others. Dr. Martin Fisher is a chemist and a physicist at Duke University. He's co-author of the new mask study. How effective are masks with valves? Yeah, so the valve, of course, it's, it's in um, some N95s that are out there, and they're in there to provide comfort. Right? This valve opens when you breathe out hard, which is a problem, or could be a problem, because if you breathe out very, very hard, the valve opens and it lets out unfiltered air. So these droplets that you emit basically go through the valve. So these valves, they, these N95 masks with a valve, they protect you as a wearer, but they don't protect necessarily people around you. Okay, because your droplets are getting out anyway. So let's set the stage here. N95 or KN95, probably the best, but don't go with a valve, but maybe those aren't for everyday use, right? You use one of those when you go to a doctor's office or when you're in a setting with a lot of people and maybe you've got some worries and you want something that's that's a, an actual filter. So what for everyday use is the best mask or, or what are the best ones that you found in your study? So I personally wear a, a cotton mask, a homemade cotton mask, which does add perfectly adequately it blocks about, the ones that we studied were about 80% effective, and that is plenty for everyday use. So we really recommend the really, really good N95 masks to be reserved for healthcare workers because they need it the most. It's a matter of how long are you exposed to how many viruses. So these guys are on the front line. They need the best protection you can get. For everyday use, a cotton mask will do just fine. See a lot of people wearing these surgical grade masks, either yellow or light blue. Where do those fit in in your study? Oh, the 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 blue ones, the blue white ones, these triple layer masks, they perform great. They are now um, commonly available at a hardware store or grocery stores. Even if you go to a hospital and you don't come in with a mask, they give you one. These perform just fine. We call them the surgical mask, and they're they're, they're great. And people might like those because they're a little lighter, maybe a little doesn't get as hot when you're wearing one of those. Um, but another reason or another mask that they like are the neck gaiters or just wearing a bandana, you know, something you can pull up, especially if you go past some people and you had some things to say about those. 
Right. Net gators. So we only tested one of those net gators. It was a single layer gators. They were, it was a polyester and spandex mix. And the problematic bit, of course, is that you put those over your neck and you stretch them out. Some of those neck gators, they start off thin already and you stretch them out. It's providing a pretty transparent mesh. So if you hold those to the, to the sun, you'll see the light come through. You can, they're easy to breathe through. And that, of course, means that, well, if you can easily breathe through, well, the droplets will go through much easier as well. So there's a big variety of neck gators out there, but the one we tested, um, it had problems. So just be aware that not all masks are made equal. Dr. Fisher, when you went into this study, I'm, I'm sure you had thoughts on what might be good, what might be bad. You mentioned the N95s on one end, you, you mentioned the, the neck gaiters on the other. Were there any surprises along the way, something you weren't expecting when you did this study? Well, the biggest surprise to me was how many particles one emits when you speak. It, it was, didn't really occur to me. It, you, you, you breathe out so many particles when you, when you speak, it doesn't have to be a sneeze or a cough. There's so much coming out of you, even when you speak. And with this very simple technique, we can visualize that. And it's just nice to see. It's, it, it was a real eye-opener to see all this stuff coming out. There's a bunch of headlines out there saying, wearing the neck gaiter may be worse than no mask at all. Why would that be? Is it just doesn't offer a lot of protection and you feel more secure and so you go out and do stuff? Or is there an actual downside to it? So the mask to be tested had one problematic feature because it was pretty thin and it was stretched and it actually broke down big particles that you emit that usually would probably fall to the floor or stick somewhere and it broke those big particles down into a bunch of little particles, which of course could be problematic because smaller particles have an easier time being carried away with air. They might float around, they might float to people nearby, whereas if it's a big droplet, it might just drop down. Dr. Fisher, I've also heard that when it comes to these homemade cotton masks, you're best to have, what, at least two or possibly even three layers to make it safe? Right. We did not do a systematic study of the number of layers versus the protection. But of course, keep in mind, this it's, it's always a trade-off, right? The, the more layers you put on, the more protective they're going to get, but also the less breathable they are. So there comes a point where they get so dense that people won't wear them anymore because they're so hard to breathe through. So you have to strike a, a compromise. What about those little filters? Some of them have a little pocket that you can put something in. They sell those little carbon filters. You can even get them on Amazon in like a 10-pack. How much extra does that do for you? How, mu how much more does that help you, if it does? Oh, well, I, I really can't tell because we haven't tested those out. So the masks that we tested were just the ones that we had lying around. So this, this study wasn't really aimed at doing a systematic study of all masks. It was really aimed as a demonstration technique for these droplets. And we just had to use the mask at hand. Well, it so probably we did not test says it all right there, right? For people who may still be a little bit wary about always taking it outside the house or, oh, I forgot it, but I'll be okay this time. I'll just <laughs> run out and get something. You got it lying around anyways, or most of us have at least a couple cloth masks by now. I think we're done with the, this is my one mask. I've got the work mask. I've got a house mask. Yeah. I've got one in my glove compartment in case I forget. So whatever you've got lying around is probably going to be good for you. Yes, most of those masks we test, almost all of them did a perfectly fine job that uh, it, of course, goes along with all the other procedures, um, social distancing and, and proper hygiene. But a, most masks 
go a long way to protect others from your mission, and of course yourself as well. Dr. Martin Fisher, chemist, physicist at Duke University, co-author of the new mask study. So have you tried to buy something actually in a store recently? It's a lot more difficult to find a lot of stuff, shoes, athletic equipment that are actually available. If you want something, you're probably going to have to go buy it online. And that's not by accident. This pandemic is changing the retail experience. Bert Flickinger is a retail analyst and managing director of the Strategic Resource Group. So, Bert, what's behind this? Is there any conscious effort by the companies to forcibly push people to online? Uh, There is a conscious effort to push people online, and it's primarily by the brand suppliers. It's scandalous, and and the Federal Trade Commission should investigate it because they're short-shipping the stores uh, to create a shortage because the stores uh, promote uh, the shoe sizes, uh, deep discounts, and they'd rather uh, have the stores have low to no inventory and sell the brand, sell full price on the brand's own website or the brand's own boutique. And, and they're really doing in shoppers across California and across America. I guess what people are noticing is when they can go out to find a store, either A, it's not open, some of the, the, the outlet shops or the, the, even the name brand shops, and B, when they do go in and they say, do you have something in the back? You know, used to be able to say that this shoe is not my size, the one that's on display. So you got something, they go out, they go back and get it. But now there's nothing back there. Are the distributors holding on to stuff because they know that people are probably going to end up buying it online anyway? So it's just not making it to the stores. Yes, the distributors are holding on, uh, hoping the shopper uh, will buy online at a higher price. And also uh, the chain stores change their payment terms uh, to paying for the goods uh, every uh two, three, as as, uh, far out as four months, uh, where they had been paying every month. So the distributors are hoping to sell more online and more through their own stores because uh, the chains uh, change their payment terms uh, until uh, getting back to normal on uh, 30-day payment terms in October. And because the chains are slow to pay, uh, the brands are slow to supply the stores too. And the brands uh, were pathetic in terms of supplying the stores uh, before the pandemic and before the payment terms had slowed because of the pandemic. Bert, getting back to what you were saying in your first comment uh, about the fact that stores, many, many companies are doing this, you believe that the Fed should get involved and investigate this? Yes, the, um, the Fed and the Federal Trade Commission should investigate it. Our study, first of um, uh, women's designer shoes in Southern California, and then uh, worldwide in 2017-2018, uh, we, we saw that uh, the big brand designers, uh, Jimmy Choo, Manolo Blahnik, uh, et cetera, et cetera, uh, were uh, sh- essentially short-shipping the stores, so the stores had to sell what was on display uh, before they were open to buy to uh, bring in more, and they were uh, Gucci and the others were hoping to sell the shoes through Gucci's own branded stores and own website. And then it went uh, from women's designer shoes uh, to sneakers, uh, sports apparel, uh, all casual shoes, uh, uh, boys, girls, uh, men, women, students, athletes, et cetera. And the uh, Federal Trade Commission should investigate uh, because shoppers are are paying a premium uh, because the shoe suppliers are doing in the stores and doing in the shoppers at the same time. Bert Flickinger, retail analyst, managing director of the Strategic Resource Group. So, now the Dr. Pepper shortage. People cannot get enough of it. 
during the pandemic. The company is out with a statement addressing a recent shortage of the drinks in stores, writing in a tweet that it's harder to find Dr. Pepper these days. We're working on it. Hang tight. So which part of Dr. Pepper is hard to get in a global pandemic? You know, because it says doctor on it. Okay. So, you know, it's not hydroxychloroquine. It's Dr. Pepper. It was my doctor. His name's Dr. Pepper. Anyways, company says it's working with the distribution partners to keep the shelves stocked while also ensuring the safety of the Dr. Pepper employees. You can find this Radio.com original podcast and others on Radio.com and the Radio.com app. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. And be sure to hit the subscribe button so you can always get the latest episodes of Coronavirus Daily. And hang on to the Dr. Pepper, the limited supplies that you have. It's so misunderstood.